would you would think that you know not being able to breathe if I don't take you know a four hundred dollar inhaler every eight hours you know would bump you up in the line, but they're like, nah, you're good, you're 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 already taken care of. Not to mention that like the inhalers that I I get are some of the inhalers that they're giving to post COVID survivors, the long haulers. Yeah, so now you're now like all the prices are going up and (sighs) insurance companies are like, yo, we can't afford this anymore. So the beginning of the year, I saw a 30% 30 bump in in my inhaler cost. So yeah. That's a that's a good note, but uh, we're gonna do a cold cold start here, cold open. So I'm I am here with, uh, let me make sure I say it right, Wesley. Yep, Wesley. Is it Faulkner? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Awesome. How you doing? Uh, this we're recording on a a Saturday morning. So how you doing this uh this morning? How's it's life? It's been a good morning. morning. It's been good. I can't complain. Kids are screaming. They're having fun. Uh. Life is all a pleasure right now. That's that's always a good sound. Like I've got, I, I mean, if I if I open the door, you probably hear Coco Melon or or jo- Super JoJo or something playing on YouTube in the background with a a two year old trying to sing along. So uh, I I definitely love love that sound. Like you just know life's happening behind you. But uh, tell tell everybody a little bit about you know who you are, what you do. Uh, and uh, some of the things that that make you excited uh, in the tech space. Oh wow! Um, my name is Wesley Faulkner. I'm a developer advocate for Daily. I've been at Daily since the end of August in the 2020s. If you remember, that was like two years ago, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've I've always been a fan of technology. Love technology, both as a user and um, as entertainment in, in forms of like sci-fi and never thought my wildest dreams, I would be where I'm at. I grew up poor in Houston, Texas, born in Brooklyn, but uh, didn't even have a computer until I came to college. And when, when I was a kid, my uh, you know friends of family say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say an artificial intelligence engineer. <laughs> And uh, your friends were like, "All right, I'm, we're, all right, you you do that, you, you do that." Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I hear like you know, police officer or soldier. I'm like, I don't want to be shot at, nor do I want to shoot at anyone. Uh, I want something safe, and uh, so that's where I defaulted to because I love technology. Um, generally speaking, where I see technology going, um, well, I, I'm I'm gonna lean on the side of hope that it will add more equity, uh, more inclusion, and be overall um, a, a positive for humankind and to breach understanding and access uh, for all levels of from finance to uh, the web, everything. That's dope. And and that's, that's actually one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about reading your bio is that, you know, one, you're an advocate. And, and I didn't know that. Was this your first role as an advocate or? This is my third. Third, uh, before okay. Before, I've heard this. I was with this company that you may have heard of. Uh, it's called MongoDB. They have interesting yeah. licensing there. Um, and 
<laughs> and before that, I was at IBM. Okay. Okay. So, wow. It's, it's a real small world. Do you know, uh, well, we're not going to throw any names out there. Um, well, we'll throw one name out because he's been on the show before. Joe Carlson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Love so Joe. Joe's, Joe's been on the show before, and I, I'm a fan of MongoDB. And funny, you should talk about licensing because the the company that I advocate for, Elastic, we just uh, we just went through a, a interesting SSPL journey. So yeah, that uh, to the people to the people that know about the SSPL and licensing changes. Um, we're not going to have that conversation today because I'm tired of having that conversation on Twitter. Um, but then also, uh, if you're not aware, uh, not all licenses are recognized by the community as a whole. And I, I say the overall tech community, but then that doesn't mean that those licenses are you know, malicious or, or negative. It, it's, it's a different thing. It's, it's people protecting their intellectual property or deciding to do something else with it. So, um, just remember that when you go and start yelling at advocates, because ultimately they didn't make those decisions, nor do they enforce them. They, they don't drive that conversation any, any way. Like most of us want to talk about the technology. We don't want to talk about the licensing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you were thoroughly consulted before that decision was made, and oh, uh, yeah, it know. all hinged on your opinion and the direction of the company. I, they I, they were totally like, "Jay, now if you don't like this, we 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 can go a different path. Like we can we can think of something else." No, that that's not how that works. But uh, no, I was asking because I actually got my first advocate role. The first day of September was my start date. So uh, when you said August, you said late August, I was like, oh, wow, we like started around the same time. But um, a few of my team members came from IBM. So and I know IBM is like one of those massive companies. So if I were like, oh, you know, this person, like probably not like there's the only reason I would think that you might know them is that they are are from also from Texas and they are in Houston. Right. So it, it, it might make sense, but we'll, we'll go down that road offline. Maybe one day, who knows you might, you might know them, but uh, yeah. One of the things that I saw um, was that your focus as an advocate uh, centers a lot around like neurodiversity and neuro, um, you know, atypical folks, which, uh, we kind of mentioned before I am, you know, I have, I got diagnosed with ADHD, uh, three years ago. Yeah. Three years ago, which I'm starting to realize is a common trait in, in the black community is that a lot of kids who were called hard headed are now reaching their thirties, mm-hmm. getting therapy for the first time and being like, Oh, you mean there was another word for that? <laughs> like that there's a whole diagnosis around that. So, uh, talk about, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, neurodiversity side of what you're doing i am also adhd but i'm also dyslexic and dyslexia has a lot of what they call comorbidities which adhd is one of the top ones for dyslexia um and i had some of the struggles that you mentioned and i want to make sure that it's highlighted i think especially for people of color um you don't get the benefit of the doubt so it, it changes from you have a problem to you are the problem. 
And that's been one of the struggles of self-loathing and stigma and shame that comes with it, with having the, the way that you think differently is instead of different, it's wrong. Um, and, and trying to get over that. And I, I'm on, I'm still early on my journey as well in terms of embracing that. Uh, I think, see, 20, I think 2020 is the first, maybe 2019 is when I actually started. Yeah. 2019 is when I actually started disclosing and publicly saying that, um, I'm neurodiverse and that, um, that I struggle and I need to, to approach things differently. Um, because I, I think the, gosh, the, the, the weight of having to operate like quote unquote everyone else and be extremely well-rounded in everything you do. It was a burden that, that was really, really hard on me. And uh, I think I was making things so much harder on myself and on other people because not explaining it up front uh, just made it harder and harder to, to tackle later on, just like the names thing, like I'm horrible with names. And uh, when I meet you, I usually say, what's your name? And then five seconds later, I was like, say that one more time. Cause I, I lost it. And then I see you again. And I, was, and I would say, Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm really bad at names. What is your name again? Because before that I would just like pretend I knew your name and then months, years go by. And it's like really, really hard to like say, okay, I don't know your name. <laughs> and that's kind of the, 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 the corner I was painting myself in. And just, it's, it's been really liberating to try to embrace that and to try to set an example and talk about it openly just so that I'm, so it's the, the words can roll off my tongue easier, but also to give that inspiration of this is what it looks like to be dyslexic. This is what it looks like to have ADHD. I'm not an alien. I'm not someone that you can't relate to. Yeah. And, and I think that the biggest, the biggest thing that we had to, you know, think about was everything we were kind of taught that everything about you was, a was a disadvantage, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, if you were born, I mean, born black and in the South, like, okay, that you're already at a disadvantage. So there are just going to be some people that don't like you and like, yeah, you're disadvantaged because of that. But then on top of that, you're struggling to maybe show. And I think that that's one of the big things that I had to realize was that it it wasn't necessarily me not being able to focus. It was me being able to show that I was paying attention or that... Mm-hmm. Or that maybe I didn't want to have that kind of conversation. It was, it was like, I I would be sitting there and someone would be talking and I'm like, I know this already. Like, I, I don't, yeah. like, I don't want to, I don't want to just sit there and be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and now, like, I, I'm a, not a fidgety, well, I am a fidgety person. That's a lie. Um, but I, I don't try to... I try my best to make sure people know that I have their attention, but also I tend to want to like use things to help with that. So like, that's why I'm a a physical, you know, productivity person. Like, I'm like, Oh, let me write that down because that way, you know, like I need to be doing something else while I'm Mm -hmm. listening. But at the same time, it looks, it looks more like I'm paying attention than like, Oh, this person's off in la la land or, you know, not paying attention to me. And I think that that 
that's where we have to make normalizing it okay. That's where we have to make disclosing it okay, like kind of those things. And it's good to see that as an advocate, you're you don't have to just talk about your tech stack. You don't have to just talk about like I'm using these tools to, you know, send data across one from one spot to another. You can you can say like, okay, let's have conversations that make our community more inclusive. And I mean, that's, that's similar to what I'm doing at my job where like, we're, we're tack, we're creating what I'm calling the proactive diversity initiative. Um, because so many companies want to jump on that, uh, we're going to make a, a contribution after there's been, you know, a black man shot in the streets. And it's like, how about we, we get ahead of that? How about we first do our best to try to prevent that from happening? But then also, let's show like, nah, we've, we've been about trying to bring equality in tech so that there is a reduced uh, wealth disparity in the culture. And in doing that, it's it's been so interesting because everyone always seems gung-ho about it. And they're like, oh, wait, no, this is hard. And I feel like that's probably the same thing when you, you start talking about like providing support for people that have... Um, mental health differences. I don't want to say disabilities because they're not, um, but different situations going on with them in terms of mental health and, and just cognitive response. So I feel like when you realize how hard it is, it shows like companies just don't want to go down that road. So mm-hmm. when you, you kind of wind up having to self advocate, you have to wind up like just being like, well, I'll, I'll just do it. Cause you know, no one else is going to if if I don't. Yeah, and what you were saying before about needing to be better during interviewing, I always had a problem with self-disclosing because I don't want, I'm already like up against, if you look at the numbers, I'm up against a big wall and now I'm going to give them another reason not to hire me. So why, why, why share something that could be perceived as a negative? Uh, but the, what you're saying about tackling the hard problems, that's important for innovation. If NASA said, well, that sounds hard <laughs> and, and didn't push forward, look, think of all the innovations that have come from the space program that has helped everyone uh, on this planet, because without those innovations, those problems here couldn't be solved because they wouldn't have been tackled. And from a technology standpoint, like I mentioned, I'm dyslexic. It's sometimes hard for me to read. But the screen readers that were made for the blind and low visibility people who who can't read uh, really helped me with having the screen reader read to me. So tackling one problem for one group means that all other groups can take advantage of them. And the same with... um, when you think about just physical disability too, uh, they're talking, there's been talk about like, what if you ha- only have one arm? How do you operate a computer or how do you do certain functions? And people think, well, what are the percentage of the population that have one arm? Well, if you've ever had a newborn, yeah. then you realize that you could be <laughs> disabled really quick. And it makes sense to be able to use your phone with one hand. Uh, to call one hand operation. And so it helps people that you may not think of or might not readily come to mind just by making sure that you're able to 
um, figure out what the problems are and try to solve those quote unquote edge cases that you might think may, may be a small percentage of the population. And, and I think that in many ways we're starting to see that, but um, I have a, I have a little YouTube clip that I cut out from one of my talks because I, I tend to like the way I would say it is I'm my mama's child, but <laughs> I tend to be, I tend to be rough around the edges and a little blunt at times. And I remember making the statement of like, cause I used to do a lot of transcription work and I made the statement of whoever thinks that transcriptions on podcasts are for SEO needs to be slapped because they're for accessibility. And it's like, sure, you get the SEO benefits, but ultimately you're alienating a a potential group of folks that can consume your content. And I've actually gotten out of that game a little bit because of companies that are actually making it easier to transcribe content. And it was, it was one of those things where like, one, I will admit, like trying to help people is expensive. And I think that there are two categories of people. Well, probably three categories of people. There are people that have the means to make their content more accessible. There are the people who are capitalizing off of accessibility and, and, and I mean, providing accessibility, not um, being able to leverage that technology. And then there are the people that have the means but want to make some case against it, kind of like the, the Domino's lawsuit that was happening a while back. And it was kind of like, why? Hey, your site's inaccessible. You know, please help make it better. And they're just like, no, it's a waste of money. And it's like, it's not a waste of money. Just just do it. It's, it's kind of like the whole master-slave reference in, in Git, where people are like, oh, well, it's going to – it's such a waste of time. And it's like it is a very simple problem to solve. In a world yeah. where things are extremely hard, but yet we figure out how to solve them anyway, like renaming something is probably one of the easiest tasks that you can tackle. And don't email me if you want to have that argument, because, again, as advocates, we spend a lot of time having to defend decisions that are made. And I'm just not in a mental space to do that on my own personal podcast. So I I can. It just doesn't make sense to me about, about the fight to be inclusive. Wouldn't you want more people to see your things and to 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 use your products? And I think for that Domino's case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, didn't they spend more on lawyers' fees than it would to actually implement accessibility into their website for people to order pizza? It's 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 just to me it's it's not even worth the fight. Um, and to to keep the status quo, people will fight tooth and nail just to not change, and it's to their detriment. I think the the argument there is. If we have to make this change, now we're on the hook for having to make all the other changes, and mm-hmm. that can get more expensive. Which, again, I think that there's there's a lot to say of, like, people often have these tools available to you. Like, there are resources available to help you go along that path. And I think that's where, like, in the diversity advocacy space, like, there's so many organizations, like, 
having getting to know some of the the orgs that are out there and just the amount of resources that they've taken the time to make so that you don't have to feel like you're doing it on your own so that you can feel like you have help along the way to make sure that you're doing it in the the most inexpensive and efficient way possible and just putting someone on that team to say hey if if it comes out that we're doing something wrong, let us know now so we can get ahead of it early. Because I, I feel yeah. like that's the problem that we run into is that we tell people like it's okay to tell people that you have ADHD. Like that can't be a disqualifier for you, but we know that it is. And I think that it's like until we start normalizing some of these things and showing people that like having ADHD is honestly. I, I would love to work with more people that openly have ADHD and, and talk about it. And I could cue to a sponsor, but I don't have one. But I know of some organizations that are that are advocating for folks that have ADHD. And it's it's amazing to see that. And I'm working with them. But it's hard to convince people who have been told one thing their entire life. Like, you're a problem. You have an issue. You have all these wrong things. To to go ahead and expose that to people, especially when, you know, it was the reason they were in detention all the time. It was the reason that they struggled in school. It was it was like the source of all of these bad things that happened to them. Why would they want to disclose it? Like, why? Like, most people don't think I'm black when they talk to me on the phone and then they see me and they're like, oh, (laughs) <laughs> oh, you got you, you got you got that textured hair. Hold on, let me uh let me re reevaluate everything I was about to say so that I don't get in trouble and it's like you shouldn't have to. Yes. My name is Wesley Faulkner. So yes, I get that too. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Kevin Miller, like again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what you're saying about the seatbelt and oxygen mask is kind of what I was saying about self-disclosing during an interview i i am only doing this i I probably would not have done it if i wasn't in a more secure place in my um in my career and in the company i'm with to be able to say that i can show all of myself and expose that part of me and i don't want that for anyone else and so i am trying to make things easier not just for everyone in the world but as you know a lot of these traits are inherited but for my kids too yeah. to make sure that things can be easier for them. The shame and stigma is just crippling. Um, I wrote a, wrote a blog post um, after I left MongoDB. Um, that's, I'm just mentioning that as a time period of when I wrote it. during. So this was 2020, um, the culmination of doing a lot of self-reflection uh, right after George Floyd, the BLM was at its height being quarantined a lot of, I think a lot of people also were doing reflections of where they are, where they want to be. And so I wrote a blog post about exposing about how difficult it is to live with that complexity of the world saying something, your voice internally saying something, the media you're consuming is saying one thing and all of it feels like it's against you and just being in being feeling like you can find a place where do I belong? Where can I just be me? And uh, growing to the point where if 
I don't feel like there is a place for me. I'm going to make a place for me. And that is something that is right. So it's not something that like I feel entitled. It is something that should be there. And that is something that I want to make sure that I can wedge and make my own space to make sure that the space that I take up is not just for me, it's for everyone that's going to be behind me. And when you think of a wedge, it, it's at a point and then it pushes forward, but it makes a wider space behind that, that inflection point or that point where you have the egress into a space. Yeah. I, I feel as if there are a lot of folks who are, because they've had to for so long that are advocating for themselves knowing that by, by showing you open the doors to so many people. Um, I had, I had a great conversation with my boss and luckily shout out, shout out to her. She's, she's awesome. Um, we were talking about traditional strategies, um, traditional strategies and advocacy, traditional strategies and, and outreach and there was a conversation about, well, like, we need to make sure that we're speaking at Ivy League schools and at Stanford and all that stuff. And it was like, what, what about HBCUs? Like, what about, mm-hmm. what about boot camps? What about state schools? Like, you've got so many amazing people, they just can't afford to go to an Ivy League school. And what you're telling them is that, they're not worth your time because they're not from a financial background to which in all honesty, they probably don't even need, need the job that you're trying to, you know, position them for, especially like for us, you know, like for me, like I work in, in a strong DevOps space. So it's like, I'm not out there talking to people about how they can work at my company. I'm trying to help them get a job somewhere else. So it's like, by me telling them like, oh, well, I only want to talk to people that went to Stanford. I only want to talk to people that went to like Harvard, Yale or MIT or Caltech. That all that says is like, if you can't afford those places, you're just not going to get a job in this industry. And that that starts to perpetuate that cycle. And I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why what I try to do is make everything about I don't want to say the quote unquote struggle, but everything about my personal struggle, like grew up black in the South. All right. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about problems with racism. Like it's just going to happen. Um, live in San Diego. Now there's a huge racial disparity in, in wealth. And I was like, all right, we're going to talk about topics and open data that can show why there are these instances. You know, one of my, my projects this year was, you know, creating a database of logging police call records from, you know, the last seven years and seeing like what areas of town have more police patrols, more people getting the cops called on them and thinking about how that plays a role and looking at like racial identify or the racial identification and profiling act data and seeing like the huge disparity for not just black and brown folks but you know openly gay trans and transgender folks as well and seeing how your how your presence is openly recorded as being a disadvantage to you in hopes that it'll encourage people to do better and by being able to tell people like yeah I was able to do all of this by myself 
And I'm just one person who's a college dropout, who joined the military, who didn't go to Ivy League school, who didn't do all these things, who wound up getting into tech through marketing because, yeah, that's a traditional pathway. If I can do it and I'm a basket case, then someone with less quote unquote disadvantages than I had should be able to do it too. And being able to raise all kinds of hell and just let people know, like, we're going to have these tough conversations with me. Like, this is just who I am. This is what I'm about. And having the support of a company behind it. And I think that's like the difference is anybody can just sit there and shout at the internet. But when you have a company that allows you to focus on shouting at the internet in a way that'll be productive, I feel like that's where you can at least start to make change in your local area and like right directly around you. Uh, yeah. hundred percent snapping in my head right now, just because we're on audio. <laughs> I don't want to peek out my mic, uh, but I, I, I am so with you on that. I, I think the non-traditional path, the tech means that you've talked to a lot of people in a lot of different places on your journey and you have exposure from a perspective that may not be what other people see, which is an advantage. When uh, I talk about some of the jobs that I've had before I got to tech, it's you, you, you think it doesn't necessarily make sense unless I pick that picture and draw out that string of like how I get from point A to point B all the way up to Z and how I got to where I am. There are so many people I've, I've, I've uh, met people who have started their own companies and that company is their first job. Oh, wow. (laughs) And having that conversation of just the non lived experience feels as if, we grew up in different worlds and in some ways if it's, it's really close to that because our, where they've come from going straight from school or quitting school or leaving high school and then starting a, a company. Yeah. They might have a good idea and they'll probably grow their share and gain more people, gain more experience. But when you think of some of the, the, you know, the tech entrepreneurs, when they get to a point where of success, then they start thinking this is what success looks like. And they try to repeat that over and over again. You think of Bill Gates starting this huge company, Microsoft, and then job saying you must have a bachelor's degree for like entry level work. When Bill Gates never graduated, Mark Zuckerberg never graduated, Michael Dell never graduated, but yet they set these restrictions on the people that come in and th- that is a definition of a non-traditional pathway into tech that is buried uh, because they say this is what success looks like. But also some of those people who have that same pedigree of Ivy League have also started and failed. And uh, since they are of a privileged background, are able to keep doing it until Mm -hmm. they hit that jackpot that makes sense. And I saw one definition of saying like, you know, failure is one of the best education. But when you don't have that privilege, can you truly try and fail? Which means from an educational standpoint, 
you are at a disadvantage from not being in the privileged place. And so don't feel bad for not taking that chance. Don't feel bad for not putting yourself all out there because some people succeed, some people fail, but those people who have the privilege are able to do it and walk away from it. One of the, one of the things we were, I had talked about actually with a few people lately is the idea of like burnout and how burnout is absolutely 100% a thing. I know like in, in some of those conversations, it, I'm, it may sound like I'm taking the stance of like burnout is, is a privilege, not a right. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I'm trying to better convey there is you can, when you have the privilege of being able to recover from burnout, you're able to accept it, identify it, work, you know, deal with it and move on. When you burning out means your family doesn't eat, you know, when it means that you got to figure out your new living situation, you don't have the ability to deal with the situation of burnout and figure out how to best approach getting help, especially when it's not normalized. Like that's the thing. That was the thing for me, like going to therapy for the first time, I had no idea what to expect. It was, it was interesting to, to deal with some of the, the challenges that I had. And it wasn't until I had dealt with them And I had started giving myself the grace that I was finally in a position that I could do like that. That is the, again, big, big identifier there is that like I, I got therapy when I wasn't afraid of getting fired. I got therapy Mm -hmm. when I I was like, I need to take time to take care of myself when I had enough vacation time lined up that I I wasn't going to struggle with bills. Like I had all those things available to me so that I could do those things. And I think that there's still so many folks out there that genuinely just don't have that luxury and therefore they can't. So it's, it's important that, you know, we're having these conversations and these self-reflections, but we also go and we advocate for those people that don't have the ability to advocate for themselves because that could be a difference in, you know, where they sleep that night. Yeah, absolutely. It's great being with a company that allows you to bring your whole self. Um, I, I, I have a, I'm doing MozFest next week. I, by the time this is published, this will, the recording will probably be out. It's called, it's called uh, Networking for the Neurodiverse. So oh, nice. being able to relate with other people. Uh, if you are operating from a different handbook that some other people might not know about. And uh, that's something I've talked to my company about. They fully embrace me doing it. And I'm an advocate. I talk about technology but knowing that the company cares about me, cares about what I want to do, cares about the same things that I care about, makes me super excited to be at the company and really proud about what we're doing from a technology standpoint so that I don't just work on the clock. I'm going to say this in a podcast. I'm going to say this at the grocery store. I'm going to say this at a family reunion. 
there's there's no ends to me sharing my love for what I do and what I, and who I do it for because of the quality of the people that have created an environment that welcomes people like me openly. I love it. Let's let's use that as a good wrapping point. Let everybody know how they can get in touch with you because after this, we're going to be jumping into what we call the after show where this becomes Wesley's podcast and he gets to ask me all kinds of questions and I am contractually obligated to answer them as honestly and as openly as I possibly can. Okay, that part's not true, but I promise that I will abide by that ruling anyway but yeah leslie thank you so much for being a great guest on the show uh difficult conversations like it's it's always it's always good to have them and to know that you have people that are willing to have them uh but yeah tell everybody where they can find you number one place is twitter uh wesley 83 on twitter w-e-s-l-e-y 83 on twitter if you reach out and find me on linkedin most likely i won't reply because uh LinkedIn requires some sort of preamble, some context. If you put something like, I saw you on the show, that to me is not a reason for us to connect. Let's have a conversation. Let's get to know each other. Let's connect that way. So Twitter is number one. Hit me up there. Wesley and free. All right. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much to my guest, Wesley. Uh, I've been Jay Miller. Of course, the show isn't over yet. Don't quit. But the ending is a little bumpy. So I always got to get this out there now. Uh, in case people fall off but you can follow this podcast podcast.productivityintech.com follow my website kjymiller.com follow me on twitter kjymiller linkedin all those things Uh, also check out the youtube channel where i cover topics like neurodiversity and productivity and automation and all that other goofy stuff Um, again kj miller is where you can find all the things but with that said let's jump into the after show I've already explained the rules to you. This is your show. I'm answering whatever questions you got as little or as long as you want to take. But from this point on, the show is yours. Great. I'm going to stay on the top of neurodiversity. And you mentioned that you're, what, two, three years in from your diagnosis? Yeah, I got diagnosed at 29. I'll be 32 later this year. So I'm curious. I'm sure that you've heard of ADHD before you actually got tested and got diagnosed formally. I would like to know how you felt after you saw it on paper that you're confirmed ADHD. It was, it was interesting in that I, I feel bad in some ways because I was definitely one of those people that were like, Oh, my ADHD brain or, Oh, you know, my, you know, Oh, sorry. I can't focus. My ADHD kicked in or whatever. Um, One to, to, actually realized like okay in some weird way yes that was kind of what was happening but not in the way that you think i guess Mm -hmm. so in many ways that feeling was one of there was an explanation other than he's hyperactive or he's hard-headed or you know he you know, needs to, needs to buckle down more, you know, all those Mm -hmm. things. And it put, it put the first 29 years. Well, I'd say it put the first like 
12, 10, 10 to 12 years into perspective because I, I did have, you know, you mentioned that idea of like people starting their own business to be their first job. I, I was lucky that I didn't have that particular uh, situation, but I didn't feel comfortable doing anything until I was the boss and I could say like, okay, no, it's okay to go down this tangent. It's okay to, to follow this path. So to kind of get a little bit of understanding as to maybe, maybe that was me just trying to find help. And now knowing that I had officially found it, um, mm-hmm. it was, it was almost like a huge weight, but I mean, it, it, it brought me to tears. It was just like, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't a problem. Like I wasn't, I wasn't broken. Like that was my fear was like, I'm going to go in and take this test and I'd be like, no, you're perfectly fine. And I'd be like, now I'm a, now, now we have some serious problems, but mm-hmm. to just know that like, Hey, this, you can get help about this. This isn't, this isn't like, life ending you know you can have a very successful career and and in fact you can take advantage of this and use it as a as a superpower And, and it's almost like if you shoot lasers from your eyes at first it's a little scary but then like once you start figuring out all the things you can do from shooting lasers from your eyes, you're like, okay, this is kind of cool. <laughs> you know, like, I'm sure Cyclops was freaking out the first time it happened, but after a while, you know, it gets a little bit easier down the road. I, th- that, what you're talking about, the lasers out of the eyes was like the thing that made me rethink a lot about life after I was diagnosed. Because when you are neurodiverse, not neurotypical, Growing up, of course, you're thinking, well, everybody does it this way. <laughs> every, 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 everything is happening this way. Yeah, that's hard for me. Yes, that's super easy for me. And people have problems with that. And people think this is super easy. And it's almost reversed sometimes, where generally the neurotypical, the thing that you do easily is so hard for other people and vice versa. Mm-hmm. What was some of the things that stood up to you when you're saying, oh, not everybody thinks this way. Not everybody perceives this way. What was the thing that stood out to you where it was like, oh, wow. I think it was the the idea of being able to be in public speaking, but also be introverted. I think that mm-hmm. was that was like the thing that so many people were just like, I don't know how you can get up on stage and talk, or I don't know how you can you feel comfortable presenting. And it's like Honestly, I just black out and say whatever I want. And then at, at the end, people are like, good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I, I feel like there's a there's a TikTok that it's a guy. It's a guy that works at a daycare and he's asking these kids if they're smart. And then of course, they're like, yeah, of course, I'm smart. And he'll ask them a silly question. And of course, they don't know the answer. So they just make something up. And at the mm-hmm. end, he goes, all right, good job. And, it, and it's it's like. It's the fact that you took a shot, like even though you didn't know the answer and you knew you didn't know the answer, like you took a shot at it. And I think that 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 was one of the things that I was able to feel comfortable doing. And as I got older, it was like, all right, I can actually be open and honest and talk about the things that I don't know as well. It's like 
yeah, I know a lot about this area. But if you ask me about that part of it, I have no idea. So let's just mm-hmm. let's just acknowledge that there is that area over there. We're not going to go into depth about it because I'm not a professional in that area. Let's just keep focusing on this one part that I do have some knowledge on. And people are like, oh, wow, like he's not an expert, yet he still feels comfortable talking about something. And it's like and he's open about it uh, to me. Like I I. I wish more people would do that. And I wish we would normalize that being okay. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've definitely had my share of telling people like, you know, what you're asking is really outside the scope of my talk. So it sounds like you, you're pretty knowledgeable on the subject. Um, I'd love to learn from you, you know, in this area and then them realize oh yeah that's me being a, an ass so i'm going to i'm going to shut up now <laughs> this this is was something i'm struggling with i i was diagnosed a while ago um but there are because of the lack of visibility and the lack of communication it feels still like a space where i'm alone mm-hmm. like there's not a lot of people talking about it and inevitably, when I went into disclosing and saying, hey, I probably need some help because of this, the most logical question is, okay, how can we help you? That is the part that I'm still struggling with of like, I don't know what is available. <laughs> you know, yeah. give me a menu. Let me choose. And there, there's not a lot of content out there. A lot of context about, especially for what I do, what tools will help me. Like, a lot of the, a lot of the adjustments or um, coping mechanisms I've found on my own. That was I, I just sent you a link in the chat that talks about kind of this focus. I had a, a conversation with an ADHD coach on the show a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, and that question kind of came up of like, so ADHD and black and brown folks. This is this is a thing that the industry isn't completely prepared for because for so long it was just an unmanaged market and Mm -hmm. they asked me they were like how can how can we be a better ally and i that i had to think about it and just make stuff up because it was literally like like you said there just there isn't much out there it was like you know, hey, be patient. Show us, like, be okay with what we're doing. Be okay with the fact we may not want to go to therapy because, again, a lot of us are taught, like, therapy is just not a thing. Like, right. like you don't share your problems with other people. So it was, it was definitely one of those situations where I, I, feel, I feel that 100% because mm-hmm. that was my first thought was, like, I got ADHD, what do all my white friends do about this? Cause I know I'm not going to ask any of my <laughs> black friends. They don't know. Like, like right. They're, they're going to be like, you got what? Like, how'd you find that out? You went to what? You went to therapy? Like, <laughs> like, so I, I think that the first thing that we can do and it's what we've been doing is talk about it. Like be open about it, be embracing about it. But then I think the other thing of that is to normalize it in ways that we haven't in the past. And and I say we as in as a culture and as a society, like ADHD should be 
one of those things of like, it, it's, it's, it's almost like the whole wheelchair, like the wheelchair conversation. If, if you're a business that has an elevated opening, you are required by law to have a wheelchair ramp access. You have to have wheelchair access. It has to happen. Like you will get shut down. Like if you don't. And so now it's one of those things. Every restaurant has some area of seating that is accessible to folks in wheelchairs. And if they don't, then you probably shouldn't eat there because they probably don't follow other laws either. We have to start looking at what are the resources, the tools that we can provide to folks that have ADHD or have other type of um, neurodiverse symptoms or neurodiverse diagnoses that that normalize the process. Like you don't, you don't ever see those, those areas, those booths with wheelchairs. They don't have like a giant blue table on them. They're like, well, if you go to Mexican restaurants, sometimes they do, especially down here. Like sometimes they'll do like a giant blue table. You're like, what's that? Just follow the neon signs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But, but I feel like that's the thing is like, at least they have something like Mm -hmm. that's step one, have something, have something for your employees, but then also like, don't make it like a, oh man, Jay, Jay said he has ADHD. I guess we gotta, we need to, you know, invest an extra $10,000 into his office space. It's like, no, like, okay, Jay, what are some of the things that you feel like you need? And then we will support you in figuring out what you can do. And then we will also put it in the book so that when the next person comes that says, oh, I have ADHD, we can go, we've helped people in the past with ADHD. Yeah. Here are some of the things Not that we've from done. Like, <laughs> Is it possible that any of this might be of help to you? And if not, let us know and we will modify our policies. Like, I, I think that that's, that's one of the things that we have to start doing. But then we also have to give each other grace. Just, just a little bit. Just a little bit of grace. Like, talking to people that... I didn't realize how I reacted to people that had some neurodiverse tropes until I started becoming friends with people who were bipolar and on the autism spectrum. And like, once you have like ASD or if you have, you know, if you suffer from bipolar or ADHD, like when you have people in your group and you start understanding different things about them, it becomes so normal to accommodate for it. And I guess a good example of that is like, I have a cousin who is deaf and like from, from like the time we were growing up as kids, I, I tried to learn ASL a little like enough to kind of get like a good understanding of what's going on. And I I remember some of the phrasings, but I, I can't remember everything. But it was never a big deal. And it was it was never me sitting there like talking slowly and like shouting in their face. It was I'm going to enunciate my words a little clearer and I'm going to use I'm going to not try to use idioms as much with them Mm -hmm. because sometimes those phrases can get lost in translation. And after that, it, it was like no big deal. You just having a conversation. You use your hands a lot. You wave, you point, you you talk with your hands, and it's perfectly fine. And if they don't understand you, they'll tell you. Say that again. Or 
keeps it, and the, they're signing to you the whole time. So it's like you can like look at their face and look at some of the gestures that they're making and, and start to piece the, and, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together. And now when I interact with folks that are deaf or hard of hearing, it's, it's normal. It's not, it's not me going, Oh, Oh, sorry. Hold on. Let me, let me turn to your good ear <laughs> or, you know, let me, let me start speaking louder. It's, Oh, I'm sorry if I've, if I've said anything that was a little confusing or out of place, let me rephrase that or let me, let me start going into here's some of the things that I have to do to accommodate my friends. And when you, when you get used to doing that and when we normalize the act of doing that, it doesn't become this, this big issue. Yeah. You don't have the, don't stare at them. Don't look at, yeah. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Look away. It's normal. It's okay. I appreciate that. All right. Last question. Maybe not the last question. Next question. (laughs) Um, What are your resources that you go to for your own self-education? Me, when I look up with about dyslexia, I get two resources. Uh, How to graduate from high school and get through school with dyslexia and how to manage a kid with dyslexia. Uh, Uh, There's zero in terms of an adult dealing with dyslexia and how to be, uh, uh, how to go through life as an adult. So what are some of the resources that you do to further your education? I think for me, like having conversations like this, like looking at, I, I cannot sit down and pay attention to an online course long enough, but I can watch like a, you know, a small YouTube video. Um, there's a good ADHD video, uh, or good ADHD channel. And I'm trying to remember the name of it now. I'm, I'm looking it up, which is something you should never do in a podcast, but that's okay. Um, We'll fix it in post. Yeah, we'll fix it in post. Uh, it's how to ADHD, which it's a uh, it's a lady. I'm not sure of her name actually. I don't know if she ever says what her name is. Well, okay, that there's that. Um, but it's a good YouTube channel. One of the things that she did recently was to have oh it's, well, it's just just says Jessica, so that's fine. Um, she had a good conversation with a bunch of black folks about ADHD. And I was like, Oh, okay, this is cool. I'm going to listen to this. But then I realized that some of the best resources for me was let's talk to people who are living with it. Let's Mm -hmm. resource share. Let's, let's improve each other's lives in, in many ways. And it's, it's easy for me because I can just go, Hey, I got a podcast. Let's just jump on and have a conversation. Like you can do that, you know, and I mean, anybody can do a podcast. It's not that hard. Um, but I, I didn't necessarily look for resources. I looked for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked for people who are already out and open about what was going on in their life and, and ask and not being afraid to ask them questions. I think that there are some issues in that because not everybody's going to be, you know, open and willing to just like, yeah, I'll sit down and talk with you for an hour and a half. That's no big deal. Um, you know, that I feel a little privileged in that area that I can just ask people to do stuff like that and they'll agree to do it for some strange reason. But there, there aren't really any good 
there aren't any good resources in my opinion because no resource is going to be a hundred percent. Like you're going to just have to like take the few things that are out there, see how they apply to you, see how they differ and then just document those things and start becoming a resource for yourself and other people. Like I've got, I can't, I can't really show you, but I've got tons and tons of notebooks from old jobs and everything else. And I keep that stuff because I, whenever I have anxiety attacks, I write that stuff down. Whenever I, you know, panic, whenever I have these weird issues, like I write all that down and then I start to look for solutions as to what brought me out of that. And I know that it's a little bit harder with, with, you know, issues like dyslexia, um, because it, it's not necessarily one of these things of like, the last time I had this problem, I did this and it fixed it. Like, it doesn't really work that way. But there are, like, whenever you do find a tool that works, it's like, tell as many people about it because, you know, they're, they're not, they're few and far between. And I was actually going to ask, like, with that, with dyslexia, because I haven't talked to a lot of people with dyslexia, or at least that are open about having dyslexia. Um, there's a, there's some tools that I've seen that I'm just kind of like, does this really work? Uh, one of it's like the bionic reading thing. There's like bionic. Is it the, talking about the fonts? Yeah. Does Yes. I've seen that font. It does not work for me. Okay. Okay. I've heard it works for other people. There's also colored lenses too. That does not work for me. Interesting. And then I, I think the only other thing is like that idea of uh, quote unquote speed reading, where it's like you're not you're not looking at the word as a whole. You're just looking at like an individual piece of it. Does does that work as well? Because I've got like a, yeah, like plenty of questions. It's like uh, it's like autocomplete is always on when I'm reading. Yeah, <laughs> so I will misread a word because I see a first few letters and it's just like that's what that is, and not, don't go through the rest. Um, and so I'll misread things because of that uh, can't turn off autocomplete in terms of reading <laughs> is how I would describe it. Um, and for me personally, it's a huge mental burden um, because the the part of the brain that does symbol processing is not really working or not there. And so that processing is moved over to the other parts of the brain that aren't specifically developed for it so the overhead is a little bit higher or a lot higher so i will physically get exhausted if i have to read too much or if it's presented in a way that's not easily digestible so if it's not in bullet points bold text spaced out very well uh if i just even open it up and it's long even though if i have to read the first sentence and it's just like a, that makes it harder for me so that's why i'm i prefer twitter because it's limited, short break, short breaks of like text, the note, short blocks, and you know, I don't have to worry about it being overwhelming at any point in time. In, in time. Usually, there's nice graphics with it, makes it easier, <laughs> more pl- pleasant to, to 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 view. So yeah, that's that's most of the problems. There's other problems that come with that. Um, it, people, this is generally speaking because everyone's different. People with dyslexia also have limited memory retention. So learning is hard because 
by the time that you get to the end of a sentence, I forgot, I have already forgotten the beginning of it mm. unless I'm able to convert some of that into a way that I can process and retain it easier. Usually with, instead of symbols, it's more objects. I think that's where the, like on the, I think that's where like the drivers for like ADHD and things like you said, like a lot of those diagnoses co-mingle. Um, I think a lot of it does come from there because if, if you're struggling to remember what was written and you feel like you can't even trust in your mind, the words that you've, you've devoted to memory, then yeah, of course you're not going to want to focus on them too much. So that makes, that makes perfect sense. And I also think about like the, the rooted traditions in learning, like if if we look historically up until the 1900s probably not even like the mid 1900s bl- the black community as a whole was not a written historical narrative it was an oral historical narrative people were telling stories because most of the people around were not literate like they could not read like they mm-hmm. could read signs, they could tell stories, they could sing songs, but they weren't going to pick up, you know, the grapes of wrath and, and you know, be able to recite it verbatim or, or, you know, be able to tell you what happened in that story because they would never read the story. So I wonder if the rich culture of storytelling, uh, which I is still one of my arguments as to why I think black folks make the best developer advocates, because you're not telling people about the stack. You're telling the story of the stack. You're telling a story with the stack. Um, I I think once more and more folks realize that it's like, Oh wow. Yeah, no, we have people that are truly talented and have lived the majority of their lives having to come up with alternative ways to learn mediums because of, just traditional struggles. Maybe they had to learn differently because their parents weren't highly educated, which I know like now, luckily we're the adults. So like we have a little bit more opportunity of education than our parents did, but my mom is dyslexic and she's also like naturally left-handed, but was forced to write with her right hand. So Mm -hmm. like she's ambidextrous, which is kind of weird, but it's, it's like those, it's like those accommodations that are were weren't made at that time gave them different strengths and areas that now we look at them as weaknesses because we we don't have a certain strength in maybe like you know being able to recite something or read a script. Um, some of the best actors are terrible with scripts and they just make it up as they go along. Q. Eddie Murphy, Whoopi Goldberg, folks. She, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I. I, I think that that's that's something that we have to mm-hmm. keep in mind still of like we are a product of our history and of our of our environment, not in ways that's like, oh, well, if everybody around you was a drug dealer, you're gonna grow up to be a drug dealer, but it's like you may be able to relate to certain topics by using the same mechanisms that the folks around you were accustomed to using because they didn't have access to those other tools. 
And now you, when you combine the two, that's where innovation happens. And that's where we can start to see things like, I, I wish so hard Clubhouse would have been made by black folks because there's, there's just so much, there's so many problems with it and, and things like that. But like, it's such a great opportunity. And we see some of like, just some of the, the, um, the best stories told are told from people who use their storytelling to overcome a, uh, a disadvantage in another area. Absolutely. And like you're saying, developer advocates and storytelling that we don't just need to know what we're talking about, but we have to feel it. Yeah. And that painting an emotion, painting a picture and uh, being able to transfer that to other people is a real strength for people in the advocacy space and uh, something I lean on constantly. And, um, with that, I, I have no more questions. Uh, I, I think you are a good good interviewer as well as a good interviewee. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs>